This call is being recorded. Welcome to Sustainable Business Friday, hosted by the students of the Bard MBA in Sustainability. My name is Jeff Leatherwood. Sustainability uh, business, Sustainable Business Friday airs twice monthly on the first and last Fridays of the month, featuring sustainability leaders from the New York City area and across the planet. The series is available after the call uh, via either podcast or edited transcripts, which appear on greenbiz.com. On uh, today's call, Tony Gonzalez is going to be, uh, Tony's a student in the Bard MBA, and he's going to be talking with Pierre Ferrari, the president and CEO of Heifer International. And I'm really excited about this call. I actually um, received a sheep this year for Christmas from Heifer International. Or uh, to, to clarify, I didn't receive a sheep, but um, somebody received a sheep on, uh, on, on my behalf. So um, this is great, and so I'm Salam from the. Um, I'm sorry, if people can um, mute their phone. Okay, uh, I'm an I'm an alum from the Bard program. I graduated last May, and I'm located here in the New York area, and doing what I can for sustainability. And Tony, um, Tony Nagalis, we had some classes together uh, last year and the year before. Um, you opted to do the the three-year route while I did the, the two-year. Um, and that's one of the benefits of the BARD MBA in sustainability is since it's partial residency, it allows you to be a working professional and still be working toward the MBA. And, mm. you know, some people choose to get it done in two years, some people in three. And, Tony, you're you're almost there. Yeah, I got uh, just this last semester, and I'll be an, an alum just as you. Awesome. And uh, I'd love for you to tell us just very briefly about, um, now that you're you're in your final year there, you're working on a capstone project. Can you just give a high level of what you're what it is you're working on? Uh, sure. Uh, for my capstone, um, I'm, I'm pleased to be working with a, an organization called Hudson River Housing. And they're working to revitalize uh, Middle Maine, which is uh, in Poughkeepsie uh, down here, which is uh, somewhat uh, sort of a challenged economic uh, area. And we're putting in a kitchen incubator um, that will hopefully, um, you know, teach some life skills to the local residents and also spark some entrepreneurial uh, spirit and generate some new businesses in that area. That sounds fantastic. I think there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of interest in this program around agriculture, around food systems, around food in general. So I, I think that's why we're really excited for this call today. So let's um, let's go ahead and dig in, shall we? Okay. Excellent, it. Pierre. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I met uh, I met you last year. Yeah, I'm a, uh-huh. a teacher at the Culinary Institute, and you came and you yeah. gave a presentation there. And I approached mm-hmm. you and I asked if you were kind enough to join us. Uh, um, today, essentially, to, uh, to, to sort of uh, give your perspective on your organization, uh, perhaps to, uh, give us your pathway from, from uh, what you've done in your career, how you've transitioned from sort of the clo- uh, corporate uh, world into this uh, nonprofit uh, organization. I wonder if you could share with some of our listeners. Uh, it's a great story of how uh, Heifer International started. Um, and just give us, you know, a couple of those, uh, so, some of your thoughts. Okay. 
Cypher International started in 1944. It was launched by, founded by a man called Dan West, who was a dairy farmer out of Indiana. And he had been a volunteer a great deal in Europe uh, during the Spanish Civil War and then uh, founded um, uh, Heifer International, knowing that the, the, the Second World War was coming to an end and how we're going to help. You know, obviously, it was a huge number of migrants and, and, and refugees. Uh, while he had done his work um, during the Spanish Civil War, he, they were handing out food. And he, as a, as, a, as a dairy farmer, said, well, rather than handing out milk, we should give in cows. And so that's how it started. It literally started with this dairy farmer said, I can go get my friends in back in Indiana and Illinois, et cetera, and say, we will get them cows so that they can uh, fend for themselves. And essentially, it's, you know, today's, today's parlance is impact investing. But essentially, that's what you do. You know, replacing, through philanthropy in this case, but replacing animals uh, with, with um, a substantial amount of training so that they can take care of this asset. And then we ask them, which is sort of a trademark of, of effort, ask them to repay their loans, in, in quotation marks, by passing it forward, by passing the first female offspring of the animal or animals replaced with them to someone else in the community. And essentially, they're, they're repaying the loans. So it's impact investing, right? One of, one of the wonderful things about livestock is that they do reproduce. Um, and, and that has a tremendous economic impact. And for those of you who are uh, more techie and nerdy about data like me, uh, you can go to the website and there's a substantial amount of peer-reviewed literature to show, to actually um, demonstrate and quantify the, um, the, the positive impact of asset, what is called asset transfer in the literature. So for those of you who are interested in that kind of thing, I urge you to go there, you'll find it. Um, so I, my, my, my particular story is I, I was born in Africa, uh, and because of that experience, I had a pretty, uh, and I had uh, some wonderful grandparents and parents who showed me uh, how, uh, how elite and, and precious our lives were as colonials versus the local population, which had been in many ways exploited. Um, and then uh, through all the changes that went on in Africa, I ended up in England, and I ended up in, in the land of opportunity right here in the United States, um, where I got my business degree, and, and I ended up working for corporate uh, corporate America, uh, with which I was never that comfortable. But I ended up uh, finally escaping that, uh, although I learned a great deal and, and, and have a set of skills, business building skills, which are incredibly valuable. So I made the transition to community development work and uh, mission-driven work. And I joined Heifer about five years ago and have been uh, with, with the support of the board and, and the leadership team there, transforming Heifer into actually culturally the same thing, but fundamentally driven by this idea of food systems, which uh, with the productive, what we call pro-poor, wealth-creating value chains, um, mobilizing a large number of farmers, organizing them through co-ops or some other farmer-owned organizations, which then allow them to connect and access markets in a way that's profitable for them and that allow them to capture more of the value that's required to lift them out of poverty. Because simply improving the, I would say that the international NGO world and the development world for the Southern Hemisphere has been driven by this idea of supply, supply productivity, increased productivity, and all will be well with these communities. Mm -hmm. Most business people will blanch at that idea and say, well, what about demand? Can you sell the stuff? 
So what we've shifted over from a cultural point of view is instead of supply-driven development, supply-productivity development, we're now demand-driven development. What is the market that is actually profitable and accessible to smallholder farmers or the disadvantaged in the communities? Mm-hmm. And with that notion, with that understanding that the markets are there and actually profitable for smallholder farmers, for disadvantaged communities, you can actually do a lot. But it requires a different kind of analysis. It's no longer just a sophisticated veterinarian feed expert that can show you how to grow you know, bigger goats or much higher quality sheep with better wool. It's more, is there a market for the wool? Is there a market for the goat meat? Where are we going to sell the milk and what kind of quality and, and, and specifications are required? So I'll stop there, but that's, that's what we've done with heifer. So your sheep has actually been delivered probably somewhere in, um, where would it be done? It would be in Peru. Uh, and, but what's really important if you do go see the communities that have received the sheep is how we have, uh, are training them to connect to markets uh, so that the quality, so that the wool that's being produced is actually being sold in ways that are preferential and advantageous to the farmers. And that goes to your, you know, your, the core value of, of self-reliance that you guys absolutely um, live by. Absolutely, because yeah, because at the end of the day, they've got to maintain the business that we've set them up in, which they've chosen sure. to do, because we we basically explain it to them. Um, right. Self-reliance and autonomy is at the core of it, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, you can give the guy a fish, right, and you feed him for a day, or you teach him how to fish, and and that's it for well, the rest of their life. That's great. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a third piece to that. So you can give him a fish and feed him for the day. You can teach him to fish and feed him for his lifetime. But what we're teaching them is how do you market the fish? <laughs> uh huh. Right. Uh, that third that, piece is really important. That's your expertise. Well, some of your expertise from uh, Coca-Cola, right? That's Essentially, right. Or, that's right. right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Beautiful. That's right. And where? So you you came on board. You said about five years ago. Um, how have yeah. you seen Heifer change in that time, or are you still sort of working on those pieces? And where do you see Heifer going between now and you know another five, ten years out? Right. So when I got there, the organization had gone through a very very fast growth period. Then everybody hit the 2008 uh, financial meltdown that created a lot of chaos and a lot of nonprofits because revenues, obviously, and donations, um, I wouldn't say dried up, but were certainly reduced by anywhere between 15 and 25% among, for us and for our peers. And that has a dramatic impact because without money, nonprofits don't have another revenue stream. Um, so I came in um, with the intent of creating an organization that had the systems and the efficiency, effectiveness of handling what it has in preparation for creating and training uh, smallholder farmers into value chains. Uh, that that work is basically completed. Uh, we have great financial systems, data gathering system, project management systems, um, information gathering, knowledge management. All of that's now in place, which is has solidified and. Uh, professionalized heifer so that now we can move much more aggressively into this impact venturing and moving communities through an increasing capacity on how to form co-ops, farmer-owned organizations, so that they can make the investments necessary to capture the value in the value chains. Um, Mm -hmm. If you are a smallholder farmer with three cows, 
you can there's only you know there's there's no exponential there's no leverage at all whereas if you have an investment and an ownership in a chilling plant that can gather the milk and perhaps even some small processing suddenly that milk that you can sell for maybe 30 cents a liter if it's processed and marketed you suddenly have access to 89 cents a liter which of course dramatically changes the lives of farmers. So that's that's the future change. And actually, I'm in New York right now, as I speak to you, meeting with you know pretty some pretty major investment firms, talking about how we could talk to their clients uh, and get, convince them to invest and create some funds that would allow us to deploy this impact investing at probably concessionary rates, not market rates, which I think some of their clients are very willing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's that level of capital is going to be required to elevate um, the returns to farmers. If the, the the major roadblock, because things have changed and you know things change every decade in in, in the southern hemisphere, but the the opportunity is to deploy capital into these distressed communities. You know, start for capitals. The return the return for their investments or the opportunity for investment is enormous. Uh, and and it's a simple supply demand. The demand for capital is enormous. The supply is very limited, so the returns for the farmers is actually very very high. The markets are ready. You know you've got population growth, you've got income growth, or perhaps not lately over the past few months, but all of that is going to continue. Um, and for you know we're all we all got a business mind, and these will create substantial opportunities for farmers. And our job is to try and make sure these opportunities are captured by the farmers. Not by outside investors or other folks who already have substantial interests. And so, in a way, our program is uh, is to try and balance out some of the inequities that exist in income and assets. Right. So we're talking not only business, but uh, obviously, if you have uh, sort of this implementation or transition, perhaps of the food system, it'll be affecting their health as well. I would imagine. Yeah, so and, I, I come with the idea that uh, all it's, uh, a lack of money, just to repeat myself, mm-hmm. a lack of money is the root of all evil. <laughs> so uh, you need, you know, you talk to these communities, they have, they need income with which to be able to buy health care, with which to be able to pay education, to buy clothing, to uh, install water systems. Uh, all of that requires cash and uh, sure. and good jobs. So that's the fundamental and are there? Are, do you partner with any other organizations that that help you with these goals? Or, or? sure, yeah, we, we many. One of the fundamental partnerships that we look for and are successfully, now increasingly successfully, um, developing is with local governments, not necessarily national governments. Uh, we get substantial support from uh, district governments in Kenya, uh, local governments. District and provincial governments in Nepal and India, they are, they've, they've got substantial resources to do the kind of development work that we do with smallholder farmers in more remote areas. And so those partnerships are important because we, we can't keep funding through philanthropy, extension services, and other services that we provide. We have to train government workers and the government system to build the networks they need to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the services to the farmers. One of the most extraordinary things the United States has done is the land, you know, uh, 
the land schools and all of the attendant services that are provided to farmers over over a century and a half. It's an astonishing. People don't people don't realize how the agricultural sector in the U.S. got developed, but the land grant schools and all of that extension service is a key part of it, and a fantastically effective system, um, which you know which we should be replicating all over the world. Right, right. Yeah, they certainly were. Um, now, what you, you, you mentioned Kenya, you mentioned Nepal. What what areas and, and South America too? I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. What areas do you see have for having like the most impact? I guess today. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, we're working with. We're you know, not surprising with our name. <laughs> we're quite good at dairy. Uh, we've got very substantial programs and projects in East Africa. We've got a uh, smaller project in Latin America and fairly large projects in dairy, both uh, cow dairy and goat dairy in, in um, uh, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, uh, Vietnam, and fairly major projects in Philippines. So that's one not surprising exp- level of expertise. Then we're We've got, uh, again, substantial expertise in major projects uh, in goat. Um, chicken is probably, from an economic point of view, in terms of the speed with which it can have an impact on both nutrition and income, is eggs and chicken. And there's some fascinating value chains there that can be very rapidly and productively exploited by smallholder farmers. Uh, then we work with, you know, apalka and coffee and cocoa and um all chains that have been analyzed are providing an opportunity that are demand-driven and provide high-quality, sustainable income. Uh, one of the most interesting ones is spices. Uh, the spice market is growing by leaps and bounds as income rises, uh, culinary tastes improve, and spice demand grows incredibly rapidly. So people need, you know, cardamom and cumin and pepper and it's fascinating to see and the one thing about spices is it's the very high value per weight, so there's there's all sorts of advantage. So you've got to be entrepreneurial and which we're, we're trying to do that. Yeah, that's 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 mm-hmm. amazing. I, I was very I'm surprised to hear that because I, I wasn't really thinking uh that you guys were in that um in that business, but uh, it's great to hear. Back yeah. to the, I guess the the beginning of uh, the corporation, right, with the uh, with the Dutch East India uh, yeah, trading absolutely. company. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Back to the spice <laughs> trader, full but, circle. But, owned, but aimed by the farmers, rather owned by the farmers rather than by some, you know, uh, some entity to be in London. Yeah, <laughs> right. Now, from a from a donor's perspective, I mean, Jeff mentioned that he that. that someone received a, a sheep or a goat on, on his behalf. So it's pretty easy, right. the interface, um, to participate with Heifer. Uh, how yeah. about from, like, the farmer? How do, how do they go about participating in your, in your program? Yeah. So um, so we, we, we have offices in 26 countries, uh, permanent okay. core skills as core set of people. And they are always in touch with, uh, with the communities where we have been working and where we might be working. And now that we're working at scale, and uh, I think I gave that example when I presented at the Culinary Institute uh, five years ago, our average size project was maybe 150 families, you know, part of a village. Now we're 8,000, on average, 8,000 families per project, which is several villages together, you know, connected. Um, 
so it's we don't we don't you know we don't meet necessarily immediately with an individual uh, farmer. We go to the leadership in, in villages and begin to have conversation with the leadership there, and then we go down to individual families and 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 mobilize them through both uh, what we call values-based training. We start with uh, uh, we have a set of cornerstones of values, um, twelve of them that have to do with uh, accountability, self-reliance, um, caring for others, that kind of thing. And, and, and those, right. those, those cornerstones are on the website for you to look at. Um, then we move from there to creating the conditions and self-help group. And we've got a very – in fact, if you look at our – you can't see that, but I'll tell you what it is. If you look at the way our budgets are allocated – about 60% of our programmatic budgets are actually deployed in training, and 40% in terms of animal assets um, or physical assets right. of one sort or another. So we're actually a training company. That's yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, that's what lasts. Uh, presumably the animals last as well, but fundamentally they cannot take care of the livestock properly and productively unless there is some very solid. And taking care of animals is actually a complex thing, uh, sure. and it's hard work. Yep. So, um, well, that's an uh, an amazing growth. You know, 150 families to 8,000 families. Um, yeah, we moved from 900 projects down to 140, and it's a whole from a management point of view. And so, the attendance uh, scale impact, economies of scale, which I think you've all learned about, uh, our cost per family has dropped from a thousand dollars a family approximately down to 200. Um, you know, so the money that we're deploying has actually been multiplied by five. Um, simply because we've, we've made it substantially more effective with the communities doing a lot more of the work in terms of training and passing on the gifts. And, and you know, for those of you who studied network effects, um, which is a whole uh, study, study, you know, study area of it in itself, uh, that that is really valuable. And right. uh, so if you can trigger network, and of course in the digital world, network effects are basically what drives it all. Uh, right. But you can actually make it happen in our field as well. Right. And so we're always looking right. for that. Now, what what uh, sort of challenges do you see um, for you guys? I mean, what are your current problems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty, plenty of challenges. It keeps me busy. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> so a principal one is is interesting. Um, is that we had obviously a cohort of staff that were used to small projects and relatively limited kind of activity with uh, with, the, with the families and the farmers. And we had to start a transition to much larger scale, a different kind of vocabulary. So how do you actually manage the, the labor, the labor pool, you know, the staff, uh, mm-hmm. colleagues in a way that have to have them the, the, le- the right level of capacity and interest in this. Um, and so that's been a fairly major transformation. I would say that, about maybe 55, 58% of the staff today is, is the same as it was five years ago. And so we've been introducing a uh, much different set of skills, but still committed to the mission, still uh, a great deal of you know loving kindness and compassion to you know, the communities we serve. This is, we're not a business. Whatever, you know, whatever dialogue we have about the market has to be matched with a dialogue about, about ethics and values. So, that's been the major challenge to manage that uh, correctly at the right pace with the right level of, um, you know, dignity for our staff, et cetera. So 
that's that's the number one challenge. Uh, I think we, we've navigated relatively well. Part of it was because we've reduced the number of countries as part of the scaling up strategy. We, we couldn't, uh, as we reduced the number of projects, the number of offices we could keep open just dwindled. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a set of moving parts that have been uh, have been interesting to to manage. So some of it can be training. You can imagine all the components that we can apply to this, but the fundamentals of changing the capacity and competence and interest of the staff to get this kind of strategy done is is uh, is difficult. But I think we're doing okay. Yeah. So the, the scaling up component, I guess, is, is, is what I'm up, hearing. Scaling up, understanding right? what yeah. value chains, uh, being demand driven rather than supply driven. If you're a veterinarian, you know, start. Some veterinarians make the transition to markets really easily. Others are, I just want to take care of the animals, you know. I, right. And, and so you, you hire them as service agents, you no longer have them as staff. It's the kind mm-hmm. of solutions we've come up to. Right. So that's one big challenge. And the other one is to talk to donors, because the donors have always been used to uh, what we call the sweet charity perspective. And uh, something we start talking about business and return, and they worry that we're going to lose our soul and our mission and our uh, you know, our, yeah, basically the soul and the mission of, of the organization. And of course, I keep saying it's the opposite. It's enhancing it. We're reaching more people. We're having more impact. And uh, data is important. And you know, we're trying to financialize what we do so that we are, you know, we are true, um, what's the word, um, caretakers of your money, of your precious donations need to go further, further, further all the time. And uh, so we've had some some difficult conversation with some donors and some fantastically productive conversation with some donors. Right, right. All delicate, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, Is that kind of one you guys, is that the the difference between the Heifer International and the the Heifer Foundation? Is that kind of... No, the foundation, no. The foundation is just an institutional, uh, it's just a structural uh, situation, which is, it's basically our savings account. Um, so we, some donors will donate to an endowment fund, but most donors prefer the funds to go, the funds they give to um, operations, you know, what we do every day. Every day. Right. So most of the funding that's gone into the foundation has actually come from Heifer International itself. We're the major donors, if you like, to Heifer Foundation. It's a separate 501c3. Okay. All right. And we're just creating a, you know, a rainy, rainy day fund. We've got a hundred million dollars in that rainy day fund, so it's it's a good fund. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, great endowment. Great endowment. Jeff, do you have any questions there? Do you want to chime in at all? Uh, I have many questions, and uh, throughout this conversation, I've also been digging through your website, which, uh, as you mentioned, I I can't quite call myself a data geek, but uh, I do like looking at this stuff, and you really have some robust information here that um, is, there's there's more here than I can look at currently. Um, <laughs> one of the questions that I have is about, um, uh, so obviously livestock is, pardon the pun, your, your bread and butter, um, but it, it appears from your website that you're kind of branching out into clean water or cooking stoves for communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what has that experience been like? And um, is, is you had talked about it being difficult to your, to your donors to, 
to explain to them uh, about maintaining the mission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a cooking stove is not obviously going to give birth to another cooking stove. No, um, no, so no. just just curious about how, how and where you yeah. see that going. So what we so it's again it's an opportunity for scale. So if you've got a community with where we've actually uh, we are we are operating, uh, we would then add in uh, a cooking stove program because we are aware when we're working the community that they are using open fires with attendant you know respiratory problems, use of the, of of, uh, of resources in a very wasteful way. Because our mission actually is to end poverty, hunger, and take care of the earth. So we have a mandate to ourselves to to think about the ecological impact of what's going on in the communities with whom we work, with which we work. So that's why you see stoves, you see water, you see, and of course, water is critically important if you're going to take care of livestock. And we use a multi-user system. Now, when you, let me just go back one step. When you see in the catalog, we keep it very simple. Uh, most most donors simply don't have an interest in the kind of conversation we're having. But, you know, we're working with water. Everybody gets that water is important. But the way we approach the water problem or the water situation is what we call multi-user system in, in the U.S. So the multi-user system is to say, okay, what kind of water needs are required in that community if we bring in livestock? And there has to be forage got to be grown. And, of course, humans need water as well. So those three demands uh, for water have to be integrated um, so that the animals don't die of thirst, that the crops are properly irrigated, and that the humans have clean water availability. And that's how we approach it, because it is, it's, it's, it's essentially a holistic agroecological system that we're trying to build. The principal component of it, the money generator, if you like, is the sale of the animals. Or it could be be some horticulture. We do do some agricultural work, like I, I mentioned, spice and some other things. Mm-hmm. So, but so the economic engine is the animal, but all of the inputs have to be balanced and coordinated so that the economic engine functions well. And this includes capital. We talked about investing, impact investing. So that's what we do. So the principal component of what's most visible. If you go to have a project, will be well. We'll show you the pigsty. We'll show you where the llamas are being kept, or we'll show you where the cows are are held, and except all the chicken coops. But everything else that goes on around it is complicated and has to be, you know, balanced correctly. Uh, so that's why you see. And so, from a marketing point of view, we separated out cooking stove, this, that, uh, uh, because otherwise it becomes a little bit overwhelming to a donor. So mm-hmm. one of the one one of the Interesting things from my point of view is that we've got a presentation of what Heffa does to you know, generous American donors, you know, half a million of people that donate to us every year, and then the reality of how the project is done. There's a correlate, a very tight relationship between the two, but it's far more complicated than we can present in a catalog, you know. I really like that you uh, use the word holistic in there and that you're looking at, at the whole system. Obviously, yeah. You know, it doesn't do you any good to have, you know, uh, livestock if you don't have water for them to drink. Um, Are you at all uh, aware of or or ascribe to any of the principles of holistic land management, the like Alan Savory School of Thinking? I have been to Alan Savory's ranch in Zimbabwe. Wow. Yeah, I've actually walked up. I know. I'm trying to make you jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I love Alan Savory's approach, and I've walked uh, his land with him. 
uh, and we're actually looking at, and we've we've had a relationship with him, um, oh maybe for ten years now. Uh, we haven't done anything at scale, but we're working with him or the Savory Institute in Senegal, uh, trying to organize uh, a couple of villages, about four thousand families, around the principle with their um, with their goats and their sheep, as a matter of fact. Uh, to see whether or not we can use, you know, his his herding techniques to renew the land there. So yes, so I love this stuff. I think, and he's, he's an exciting guy to be with. And uh, oh, I, I can tell you stories of that stay. It's just uh, just fantastic. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear some of those stories. I also would <laughs> um, like to uh, open up the floor if anyone listening on the call has questions that they would like to ask Pierre Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's muted at the moment, but if you hit the star key twice on your phone, that will um, unmute you and just feel free to, to chime on in. Hey, um, Jeff. In the meantime, Jeff is even good seeing um, Sure. I'm director of the MBA program, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I'm really interested in this uh, the financing stuff you're trying to organize. Uh, which I guess it sounded like some patient capital. Um, and uh, so you basically are presenting kind of a, a, a bundle of, 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 a, of, a, of a heifer-like project uh, yeah. that somehow is going to generate financial returns back to the investors. Or just, If you could talk more about that, I'd be fascinated by that. Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. Um, so we're, this is early conversations. Um, but for example, um, we could, and, and we, we've actually had conversations about this, but it's a long way from actually having an agreement or anything actually being marketed. Working capital is a desperate need on the part of smallholder farmers. And you could take uh, working capital requirements uh, for several thousand farmers uh, for, say, pre-harvest capital, $1,500, $2,000 per smallholder farmer who farms anywhere between one acre and 10 acre of land. And we would, we would have the information, we would, we would know who they are, and we could bundle them into one large group, thereby reducing risk, and then having investors essentially collateralizing all of those uh, loans into one instrument, which then could be sold by, you know, your favorite uh, investment banker. Um, the, the the framing of it that we we can pull off the aggregation. Uh, we know we can do that because we have all the information about all the farms we work with, everything else. Now, the financial uh, discipline and collection, everything else, we have not set up yet. But that's one idea, and we can go into more details on how we would collateralize it and and support it. But you know, probably not at this stage, not 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 right here, right now. But so that's that's one particular uh, approach. The other approach is to go to investors, and and I've seen this, and we didn't do it, but I've seen it done, and I, it was quite successful for a reforestation project in Haiti, and. The project was a 10-year project requiring, I think, you know, there were several tranches to be to be presented, but the first tranche was like a seven or eight million dollar tranche, and the investment tranche was eight million dollars. And then this was Richard Branson, actually. Richard Branson and Mohammed Yunus were presenting, so it's kind of rare to have the two of them together in the same room presenting to potential investors. But that's what they were doing. 
is essentially like a private equity prospectus presentation. They said, all right, you guys, what we need is $8 million in capital, market return capital. And they laid out how, what the business proposition, what the, the, the value proposition was going to be that was going to generate the income. However, you cannot make the investment. We will not accept your money unless you also give us $8 million in philanthropy to support the technical assistance and all of the uh, aggregation and mobilization that's going to be required to set that up. So that's a trend that's happening. And I like that model a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting model. Uh, and they were able to raise, I think, $5 million that night in that room. Uh, now, it's, you know, it's Richard Branson. He probably could sign the check for you know, $100 million right there, right now. But it was interesting to see how this combination of philanthropy and market return capital was being presented jointly. And uh, so I don't know if that's, you find that of interest, but I, I found it fascinating. Yeah. Sort of, sort of like back to the uh, support services. Yeah, the education exactly. piece, right? So you got yeah. the capital. And, you know, and you yeah, know. exactly, exactly. And that's what right. we do, of course. So that, from my perspective, from Heifer's perspective, all the donations that are coming in is essentially the philanthropy. So we can prepare the communities for capital that re that's required. Now, I would prefer very concessionary capital um, than rather than market driven uh, market price capital. I think. Uh, I just need we, need, we need some slack. And I, my, I don't know this for sure because we haven't done it at any scale yet. But the um, what we don't want is to burden these communities with more debt. There's a lot of debt in these communities, but it's hidden away. And it's hard to un, un, unwrap and unbundle. Um, so I'm very cautious about that. But I'll just give you one more thought about this. If you take an investment lens... And by the way, I just need to say this. It's, it's from, from our point of view, it's all about the impact on the families. It's not about market returns. In microcredit, you know, one of the interesting conversation piece for me is that whenever you need a microcredit um, NGO or even for-profit, they always talk about what fantastic uh, returns they get, the repayment rates are high. They very rarely talk about the impact. And that bothers me. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd rather talk about the impact it's going to have on the families. And by the way, they are repaying at whatever rate and with some whatever return. So we were always, at Hesla anyway, very conscious about the impact we're having on people's lives. Okay, that said, I don't want to be accused of being a vulture capitalist here. No, um, no, no. So <laughs> I've had experiences with donors, so I said, like, just let me be clear about what my intentions are. Um, so the um, where was I? Okay, um, the the approach we want to take with um, uh, if you take a lens on what we do philanthropically, and you take the financial analysis or investment lens on the philanthropic work that we take. Essentially, we invest 100% of the capital with no expectations of getting any of it back. Now, some of it's passed on, but we as donors, investors, get nothing back whatsoever. So wouldn't it be better if we can take a stance on some of the activities we fund with the expectation of recouping some of the principal and then reinvesting it, revolving back into other communities on activities that are value chain driven. So 
and that one does not exclude the other. There's no, there's no crowding out. It's just an addition of this of building value chains that are that are very productive. And we're actually doing this right now in the Delta, in the Arkansan Delta, where we've been we've been supporting a lot of the. It's a local food system. We're basically building a local food, two local food systems. One based on CSAs, the other one based on livestock production, mostly chicken, but in time also pork and and beef. And we've been investing in the value chain, meaning the collection system, marketing system, the aggregation, the processing, distribution, et cetera, et cetera. Once, so slowly but surely, all of our increasingly, an increasing proportion of our spending is expected to produce returns or revolving into the next activity. Mm -hmm. take, you know, so we're at it for now three years. That's how long it takes to build these profitable, long-term profitable system, very long, long view on the capital and and the development process, and it sort of self funds itself, or it funds itself, and in, in a way, Not, just, just in a way, yeah, because there's revenue and small portion, uh, yeah. you know we've calculated the break-even points and all that uh, kind of analytical structure which we have. Excellent. Yeah. Um, well, I've been kind of hogging all your time. Anybody else want to chime in or ask any other questions? Well, I have a little bit of a selfish question, which is kind of a, a uh, changing the topic. I'm completely fascinated and enthralled with your headquarters in Little Rock. Um, <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful building. And then just to mm -hmm. to see how um, it seems like it was built kind of as a cutting edge. With environmental space, yep. Um, can you can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, so it's a lead platinum building. Um, I'll tell you a story about Bill Clinton. So Bill, the the, the architects and the builders that built uh, the Clinton Library, which is you know just a uh, hundred yards away, and then the Axion building uh, was built also downtown as a second building with the same architect and builder, and we were the third building. So we had the advantage of all the learning the architect and the uh, and the builder had building these other two buildings. So ours is uh, the best of the three, in our opinion. And actually, Bill Clinton actually agreed, and when he visited our building and he had the gold uh, uh, qualification from LEED and saw that we had platinum, he being the competitive man that he is, immediately ordered a retrofit on some of his stuff in this building so that he could be platinum as well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a competitive spirit. <laughs> so, and in fact, every time I meet him, I said, you know, we're the only two platinum buildings right next to one another in the whole world. So he's very proud of all that. So the building has got some very sophisticated technology. Um, the... Um, which it's uh, in winter, it's self-sufficient. We have solar panels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, electrically in summer, because of the air conditioning needs, we are not. We, I mean, you know, you can go through. We have we have so many lead um, qualifications. Um, I don't know where to start. <laughs> it's a sliver of a building. It's actually very thin, so we use very little light because light comes in from both sides, both from the north and the south. We have. If you're interested in the kind of lead technology, we we you know we we just blew their doors off. Um, and uh, so, and one thing from a financial point of view is that the cost of being in that building, including the capital cost and repayment of our mortgage, which by the way is funded with a, a municipal bond, 
is lower than our original rental cost in downtown Little Rock. So we were able to not only end up with owning a building, a very beautiful building, but actually having lower annual operating costs. So that was a good move. (laughs) Wow, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, it's because of the generosity, the generosity of the municipality, you know, giving us, I think we paid 0.99% interest on that that loan. So that's, that helps. (laughs) Certainly. I love that the the materials were all sourced uh, really within very short distance of of your location, other than the bamboo. Absolutely. A lot of recycled, recaptured, uh, the the the, the air, the land itself was actually uh, a toxic site. Uh, The soil was all scraped away, uh, rehabilitated and brought back. Uh, It's just amazing kind of work. And a lot of it was funded by... Um, you know, EPA and all that kind of stuff, which is one of the reasons it's the cost. Ultimately, the cost for us was very affordable because a lot of the stuff was part of other programs. Very clever, very clever construction uh, yeah. and approach to financing it. Yeah. And how many how many people um, are located in your headquarters? Uh, 180. We have 180 people there, and we're slowly but surely, you know, we've got too much space. I've, I have no intentions of growing the, the headquarters staff, but we have every intention of renting our space at very concessionary rates to other nonprofits in in the, in the Little Rock area or the Arkansas area. But it's, you know, it's a small state. It's, two, it's less than 3 million people, so we don't have a huge uh, pool of potential uh, nonprofits. But our doors are open. We've got Teach for America there. We've got a couple of other small operations that operate out of our building as well. So uh, we want to share, share the goods, share the love. Maybe if uh, anybody on the call is looking to start a nonprofit, Little Rock is a good place there to go. uh, look at locating. We'll give you, we'll be an incubation for your incubation <laughs> space. Yeah, That's right. Someone else chiming in? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. <laughs> Hi, this is Mariana Sosa. I'm a second-year student in the BART MBA. Um, and I would be curious to hear from your perspective what the sort of next wave or a few next waves of innovation um, that are necessary for the work that you do, whether that's sort of uh, more creative ways of underwriting these uh, patient capital uh, long-term loans, or is it like mobile technology to set up banking for um for the population that you serve or is it you know some other sort of like big data analysis of the agricultural market yep so all of that um so, so we it's a great question and i think it is the next wave um there's a lot of disruption in the field both from the donor side and the programmatic side and I think everybody who's listening probably understands that nonprofit essentially operate two businesses, right? You've got a value proposition for the donors, and then you have a pro- value proposition. Hopefully, that's connected for you know the, the populations you serve. Uh, but but they're two very fundamentally different set of activities, uh, and we're trying to find ways to connect them. And capital is investment capital or, in, or impact venturing is one of them. But um, there's a very interesting thing, and I think I mentioned before that we're basically a training company. 
And uh, right now the training system is a large number of people, our staff as well as project partners in the field, that deliver the training on everything from forage growing, water management, stove cook installation, biogas installation and maintenance, uh, obviously animal care, animal health, animal feeding, bio, you know, uh, reproduction, artificial insemination, all the kind of stuff that we do in the field with the work that we do. And this, this, the teaching right now is one-on-one or one with groups, and we think it can be digitized. Anything with information is obviously open and ripe for massive disruption. And so we're in conversation. I think that's, and we spend probably around 21, it's not quite clear, we're trying to get the numbers down, but about 21, $22 million a year in training. It may be higher than that, actually, but it's that's a huge budget. And how, you know, could we digitize that in a way that's actually substantially more effective, not just cheaper, but more effective so we could reach essentially the impact uh, of, let's say, 60 million's worth of uh, of, of training. And so we're in deep conversation with several companies on how to do that. I don't know if you've heard of the organization called uh, so it's an MIT graduate student, who, an Indian a man who decided to go back to India, uh, called Digital Green. So for those of you who are in front of your computer screen, you might want to Google that quickly. And I think you'll see at least one technology that or one approach to using technology very cheaply to have a much more rapid impact on farmer adoption. So one of the criteria for training with farmers is, is what is called adoption rate. The classical training uh, used as, as governments do it is the adoption rates of new practices, whether it be new rice types or fertilizer uses, about 17 to 19 percent, something around that, very low. Uh, digital green claims it can get up to 80, 85% adoption rates, which, you know, <laughs> that's exponential impact. Um, so those, that's one area which I would say is very high on my priority list. Uh, obviously, it has a massive impact. And then if you, if you marry that, if you marry the training, digital training platforms to capitalization, some capitalization of, of asset transfer, you now have a system that can reach far many more farmers far more effectively and drive, uh, especially if it's demand-driven, and drive change in these very poor communities very rapidly. Um, I was privileged to attend a presentation at Google uh, two or three weeks ago and I don't know if you've heard of the Loon Project, which is like Balloon, but L-O-O-N. The Loon Project is essentially something Google has set up to provide you know, broadband uh, access to the poorest community on Earth. And for us, for us, if that begins to happen, it'll be a radical change in terms of how, um, you know, how we communicate with our, our communities and the access they will have, teaching and information. It's just you know, the question is great because disruption is happening very rapidly in our field. And so I've I've scared all of my staff, <laughs> you know, with a great deal of information from all these sources to say, we've got to be on the leading edge of this thing, not what we don't want to do is to be Kodak. <laughs> we don't want to be Kodak. Yeah. Um, so. You got to be in front of it. That's right. Got to be in front of it. Um, Poor Kodak has become a metaphor for 
It has really, behind. hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and especially because they, you know, they had developed the technology themselves, and they just let themselves. Yeah. So I, I keep using the K word. Oh no, that my staff, I can hear the means. Oh no, you're going to bring Kodak up again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um. Any other questions or? I'm just looking up the Loon project right now. It's amazing. So would you yeah, say that um, uh, partnerships with other organizations are are an important part of how you do business? Yes, um, very important. And it's difficult. It's really hard work. Everybody has their own, you know, their own agenda, and also very little time to to spend on partnerships. So it's easy to say, but really hard to do. Uh, and you have to do a lot of preparatory work and understanding what is going to be, you know, what's their value, what's the value you bring to the partnership, um, you know, and collective collective impact. There's been a lot of work done on this, but we, we find it really hard. Um, mm. Egos are involved. You know, people call about an ecosystem. We talk about every time we try to do partnerships, we talk about an ecosystem. <laughs> just uh, uh, it's, <laughs> Really, and you know we're at fault as well. I mean, it's, this is not something. It's not about others; it's about us as well. Um, but we've been successful in certain areas. Um, it depends on the people involved. It's, we try to set up processes, but uh, wow, um, it's hard. But but the importance of it cannot be underestimated or overemphasized. It's really, like with with Google, we will you know I'm in touch with them, and as they deploy it, uh, you know. They're not going to organize their balloons according to our wishes, but we could organize ourselves to say, okay, uh, there's going to be broadband availability in this particular area of India where poverty is rife. Let's go move there. Let's go, you know, right. uh, think about deploying our resources there and take advantage right. of that platform. Yeah. yeah. It makes mm -hmm. sense for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Mutual growth and mutual, mutual growth. impact and impact. Um, the leapfrog yeah. effect. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, and they have the billions of dollars to do it. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> we can leverage. There's always that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I certainly have a couple more questions I could ask, but um, if anyone out there listening has a question that they'd like to chime in with, I'll give them a moment to do so. In the meantime, um, so the center of your mission really is looking at ending mm -hmm. hunger and poverty. Are there instances where another mission creeps in? My my question is specifically about the, the bees and bee colonies where it's, it's, mm. it's really mutually beneficial because obviously yeah. colony collapse and things like that where uh, are, are you ever entering an initiative for reasons other than simply ending hunger and poverty? I think the straight answer is no. We work with bees and honey a lot, um, and it's a very profitable business for farmers, both for local, regional, and, and one, one community in Mexico. is a, it's, a, it's actually a global market. Um, I think we're aware of it. Our staff's aware of it. Our, you know, the, the staff that's got the expertise. Well, this is where we partner very well. Actually, we would find a local NGO or some local expertise in beekeeping, and so we're we're more on the 
on, on that side of it. We just make sure that whatever practices are, are useful to keep the bee colonies alive, we would do that. But we wouldn't be involved in policy work or, you know, uh, anything else. Uh, we're more, you know, we attend the meetings, we pay attention, we support the, ed, the efforts, but we don't, uh, we don't have programs around. Unless the local the local expertise tells us, well, do it this way, that will protect the colonies better than that. And we, you know, we tend to work in very remote areas where a lot of this uh, the colony collapses are not happening. Okay. Uh, much healthier environments, ecologies. So, yeah. Uh, on water, though, on water, we tend to be involved um, with watersheds. Uh, because that's of critical importance to the communities, both from the human point of view and the animal point of view, and as I said, a multi-user system. There, I would say we 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 are more active because um, it's so vital. Uh, but we don't yeah. build, you know, if we need wells drilled, then we, you know we go somewhere else and get that done. We we don't do that uh, as a matter of we would never fundraise specifically for uh, wells like uh, Water.org does or anything else. Uh, you know, we would meet the local Water.org folks and. I tell them about the communities where we work, and they would come and you know we would fund uh we would fund the uh, potentially fund or participate in the funding of the of the well drilling and the installation of the pumps but um, you know we're not planning to be a water dot org and have mission creek or something yeah. well, everything that you're doing is is in service of creating healthy systems healthy environmental right. and human systems and right. sustainable communities and right. it's it's been fantastic um over this last hour to hear some of your some of your stories and we thank you so much for sharing your time with us if You're welcome sure. yeah, if must, people uh, out there go ahead tony no i just wanted to thank pierre once again for for joining us it was a excellent hour and uh very interesting to hear all his work and exciting and uh hyper i think is uh is a great great place for you to to continue the good work that you've been yeah, you working on very much yeah. yeah very much appreciate the opportunity and i think um i think it's just delightful to hear about people interested in sustainable development and the mba training it's a it's a combination that is the future um so it's both the heart and the mind and uh and if we have uh if we populate you know our sector with people that uh I graduate from organizations like BART, I think we, we will make a major dent into poverty and hunger. So thank you for all of all of you. Thank all of you for doing what you're doing and committing yourself to others. That's that's important. If people would like to learn more about Heifer, where would you recommend? Uh, we Heifer.org. We're, we're building, you know, that's, that's a classic way to do it. Um, and uh, we have volunteer systems if people would like to volunteer and participate uh, again that's available on online and on site um yeah and uh, keep keep checking I mean, for those of you who are, you're all mba you're all being trained in mba so you're interested in data and analysis keep looking at our website on the data site we're, we're populating it more and more data uh, it takes time to to gather data and results because it's not like you know it, it's not immediate so we, we do baselines we do randomized controlled trials we a whole bunch of information that um, that informs our work and informs how best to allocate the donors the donor money we have. You know. Great to so see that impact illustrated in data. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, right. this has been Sustainable Great. Business Friday. We've been chatting with uh, Pierre Ferrari, the CEO and president of Heifer International.
Next Friday, March 4th, we're going to be speaking with Rena Kupferschmid. I hope I didn't uh, destroy that name too terribly. Uh, she's from MasterCard. And can't wait to see what kind of sustainability work MasterCard is doing. In the meantime, thank you again, Pierre, and have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you very much, all. all right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Pierre. Bye-bye. Bye.